welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So glad to have you on this journey with me. And today's show is going to be devoted to relatively new vacation activities. The first one we want to discuss has a new portmanteau attached to it. If you don't remember what that word means, it means when two words are smashed together to form a new word, and the portmanteau is tat tourism, as in getting inked on vacation, getting a tattoo when you travel. Our next guest, or our first guest, wrote a fabulous article on this subject for the Wall Street Journal. She is Jordi Lippi McGraw. Hey, Jordi, welcome to the Frommer Travel Hi, Show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I got to tell you, I was really surprised that this type of, of travel was now a thing. And I guess that's because I've never had a tattoo. And so as an outsider to this, I always assumed that tattoos were something that you had an idea well in mm-hmm. advance what design you would want. And then you would find somebody to simply ink you with that design. And so why do that on vacation? You could do that anywhere. But that's not necessarily how people approach tattoos, right? That's absolutely correct. And the point that you bring up is very poignant because that's what this whole issue was about, was this difference in generations. And while, yes, while once tattoos were about, you know, you would think about it for years and years before finally deciding on that design... Some millennials and Gen Zs are willing to get tattooed while they're on vacation to enhance that experience. And that can come in the form of traveling to go to a specific tattoo artist. As you know, the rise of social media has also made some tattoo artists very popular with millions of followers. Then other people are traveling to get these culturally relevant tattoos like a, a Buddhist monk in Thailand. And then other people are just, hey, instead of picking up a keychain or a spoon, they're getting a tattoo to remember their experience. It's like the ultimate souvenir. Well, yeah, the ultimate permanent souvenir. (laughs) So uh, let's talk, let's start with the culturally Mm -hmm. relevant. Tell us about the monks in Thailand who did this. Yeah, so one of the subjects I spoke to named Andy, he uh, went all the way to Thailand to get this really incredible experience. Uh, It's called a Sakyant tattoo and it's done by these Buddhist monks in a temple in Chiang Mai and they do it all by hand and they chant while doing it. There's gold involved, there's prayers, and it's more than just sitting in a chair and getting a tattoo. It's really this supposed to be spiritual experience. And Andy told me that even though it was quite painful, that he kind of got into a trance almost while getting this tattoo and it was uh, an incredible experience. Well, I want to unpack what you just said. There's gold involved. What does that mean? I don't mean? even know exactly how it all works. <laughs> I, you know, it's he told me that they use gold flakes sometimes. I don't think that that's etched into your skin necessarily. I think it's more part of the experience of being in the temple and overall, you know, just being part of that culture and those Buddhist monks and it's part of what they do. <laughs> you you also said they do it by hand. Aren't All tattoos done by hand? No. So, well, yes, in theory, a a tattoo artist has to do it using their own hand. But what most people do when they get tattoos now is it's a tattoo gun. So it's something, you know, a needle that's going very rapidly faster than any human could do it. When it's done by hand, that is literally someone 
dipping it in ink, poking it into your skin, dipping it in ink, poking it into your skin. So it takes a long time and it can be a lot more painful because you don't kind of have that vibration and that quick nature of it to make it go by so quickly. Wow. You also uh, uh, talk about an, an Israeli tattoo artist. Uh, who has been doing this or who who follows in the footsteps of tattoo artists who have been doing this for pilgrims since the 14th century. This is somewhat surprising for Israel because I know Judaism does not approve of tattoos. They believe that the body is sacred and that you shouldn't deface it with a tattoo. Uh, so tell me about that tradition and, and the artist who does who does these types of tattoos. Yeah, so it's this shop uh, called Razuk Tattoo. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And they have been tattooing pilgrims, yes, since the 14th century. And it's pretty much the same design that they've been doing for hundreds of years. So the subject, Rachel, who I spoke to, who went to get it with her husband, she opted to get the love and family design, which is kind of like this tree and bird imagery. And what she loved about it so much was that she said it felt so cool to be connected with people from hundreds of years ago. And that was the only way to do that was through this tattoo. So it, it was just like this really interesting experience that she got to have to feel closer to her culture and closer to a lineage of people. I'm like, you know, any other way. Right. And I'm assuming these are all Christian pilgrims. I, I, I would assume, but maybe in modern day, I think it's um, probably most of people nowadays. Yes. Especially as the younger generations are the ones uh, promoting this idea of being tattooists. Interesting. Now, when I think of tattoos and cultural tattoos, I think of two things. Well, I think of the South Pacific in two ways. You go to New Zealand and you see one of the cultural shows there done by uh, Maori people, and they have the most extraordinary tattoos. So I would think that tourists want to get those tattoos as well. But is that culturally sensitive? Is it okay to go to a culture that you're not part of and ask for their tattoos? I mean, I think that's... that's a very big discussion to have, right? And I think people are going to have different schools of thought on it. But for the people that are would go and get what you're talking about as, as the Maori tattoos, you know, what's their motivation, right? Like, what's their reasoning for it? What's what's their experience? Perhaps they have a connection to the area. Um, maybe they're not getting the full face mm -hmm. tattoos, but maybe just a little symbol to feel closer to that part of uh, culture. So I think it just really is case by case basis right. in, in, in this instance. Tell us about the shop that you profiled in the piece. And we should say, there is a note on this Wall Street Journal article that none of these shops paid no. to be in it, that the, the Wall Street Journal doesn't get any kind of commission, that these are just the top shops for this type of tourism. Absolutely. Right? So the one um, in New Zealand that you're talking about, his name is Emiya Taylor. And it's really not even quite a tattoo shop. It's kind of just like a house out in the middle of the country has become huh. you know, the most famous person to do these tattoos. And uh, yeah, definitely none of these. These are all just found by research and talking to people who are really enmeshed in the tattoo culture to find out who these really these top artists are. And the one um, Horimitsu in Japan, John Mayer has gone to him, the, the recording artist. So these people have really made um, names for themselves. And in fact, talking about not promoting these uh, these places, the, the Buddhist monks, I actually reached out to them to see if they would comment on my piece. And they said, absolutely not. That is not, they're not about promoting themselves. And they will 
going to comment on the piece at all. They said any information that I could find would be on their website. It was really kind of just an FAQ of of what to expect when to go there. But to maintain the the sacred process, they did not want to comment on the story. Interesting. Now, I know there's also a long tradition of sailors Mm -hmm. getting tattooed. And and I've read about this. The reason sailors were kind of the first Westerners to get tattooed was it was a symbol for the people in the far-flung parts of the world that they were visiting, that they were down with the local culture, right? So, are we still seeing those types of tattoos? Yeah, there's actually a really famous shop in Hawaii that I mentioned uh, in the online piece called Queen Street Tattoo, and it's based in Hawaii. And their whole thing is about having uh, highlighting these maritime tattoos, especially in Hawaii, a big part of their culture. And what they what they do is they focus on doing flash tattoos. So instead of right thinking of your own personal design for years and years and years and having a tattoo artist come and do it, you choose what's on the wall. They just have a few, you know, a bunch of images and a book on a wall. It's called a flash tattoo and you choose that tattoo. And a lot of them are these, you know, uh, think of the mermaid or an anchor, those like really classic uh, maritime tattoos. That's what they become famous for. And uh, it's, it's just, it's really interesting to see the breadth of these types of tattoos across the world. Huh. Now, because I have two daughters who have been tattooed, I know that after you get the tattoo, you have to treat it. You have to make sure it doesn't get infected, which I guess raises safety and hygiene issues. How do you know if you're, say you're in, I don't know, uh, Vienna and you decide to get a tattoo to commemorate your trip there, how do you know that that the store you're choosing has good safety standards, is is hygienic, is has people who are expert mm-hmm. in this? That's a great question. If you're going to go for one of the celebrity tattoo artists, you know you're in good hands, right? If you're going to go to any sure. of these ones mentioned in the piece or other just well-known tattoo artists, you know you're in good hands. The Buddhist monks have a whole thing about their hygiene on their website. But if you were to decide like, hey, on a whim, I'm going to go to V, I'm in Vienna and I want to get a tattoo, what I would recommend, and this is something that I did recently when I was in Paris with my husband, and we knew we wanted to get tattoos. And I reached out to our hotel concierge and I said, hey, can you recommend a really good place? Can you do some research for me? Because I didn't speak the language natively. I wanted to be sure that it was vetted beforehand. And they were happy to help me out. They, they did some research on their own. They called around. They asked their local friends. And they were able to put us in touch with a great tattoo shop to get our tattoos. So that's what I would recommend. If you're working with a, a travel agent, perhaps. Um, if not, I would say your hotel concierge. Or if you're staying in an Airbnb asking the host for some recommendations and and then going online and maybe doing some uh, checking the reviews. <laughs> That's interesting. But they did have to do the research. They didn't just have this at their fingertips. No, I, I, in my case, no, they did not. In other hotels, perhaps there's someone there who's who, who has knowledgeable <laughs> of all the tattoo shops in the area. But for the hotel I was at, that was not the case. But they were more than happy to uh, do the you know some research for me and give me some options. Right. Well, that makes sense. And... Uh, Let's let's just say this straight out. This became a topic for the Wall Street Journal because it's a major yeah. trend. And when you have a major trend in travel, you're going to have major corporations jumping on it. And right now, there is a cruise line. This blew my mind when I first heard it. There's a cruise line that offers tattoos. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, so Virgin Voyages, which uh, is Richard Branson's uh, cruise line. Of course. <laughs> Everybody knows. 
Uh, yeah, they have a yeah. tattoo shop on board, and it's actually the the first tattoo shop at sea. And they worked with again a famous tattoo company called World Inc. And they have a tattoo shop on board and you can just decide to get a tattoo. And one of the people I spoke to, her name is Madison. She actually decided to do it. She didn't even know the tattoo shop was going to be on board when she went on the on her voyage. And she saw it and she figured, huh. hey, why not? And when I spoke to um, the SVP of Fleet Operations, he said the idea came to him because he found out that while he was in Miami, a lot of people who were going on cruises were stopping in Miami on their way home, getting tattoos to commemorate the cruise that they just went on. So he said, well, why not just combine the two and put the the tattoo shop on board? And uh, Madison said it was so cool because how many people can say that they got tattooed in international waters? So again, it plays into this idea of Gen Zers and millennials kind of wanting that really interesting story. They want something super unique. Um, and being able to say that you got a tattoo while in international waters is is part of that experience. But what if you're in international waters and a rogue <laughs> wave hits the ship and suddenly your beautiful design has a big mark through it? Wouldn't that be a bummer or is that um, also a mark? Of if there's pride? anything that I've learned from uh, speaking to everyone in this piece and, and more so and my, me myself being a millennial, I would say that that would enhance the experience. I think that would only make <laughs> these people happier, these tattooers happier, because it would be uh, a heck of a story and what a way to commemorate it. So I think they would actually celebrate the the, mis- the permanent mistake on their arm or leg or wherever it was, hopefully not on a face. <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, fascinating. On that note, thank you so much, Jordi. It's been a delight speaking you with as you. Well, thank you for having me. So we started out talking about tattoo vacations, and now we're going to talk about swimming, which may not sound like that unusual a vacation activity, but it is when you do it for several kilometers. Elaine Glusak, who is the frugal traveler for the New York Times, has a terrific article there called For the Love of of the water, tours for the swimming obsessed. Hey, Elaine, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. Thanks for having me back. So people are going on vacation and they're swimming for hours at a time. Obviously, this is not, I would think this is not something you can do alone, right? There there are too many safety issues involved, unless you're just going to be swimming backwards and forwards in a swimming pool, which doesn't sound like much fun. Right, exactly. And that, I think, is the appeal of going on these group tours is that you can kind of do these longer distances um, or, you know, stop repeating yourself in a pool by going with a group. And then the group is usually shadowed by a safety unit in boats uh, or kayaks. And the organizers have done the research in terms of finding calm water, you know, water where there isn't um, dangerous currents or other threats like boat traffic. So so for those reasons, you might want to sign up for one of these swim vacations. Right. If you can. I thought one of the most startling pieces of information in your article was 
a lot of these tours are sold out two two years in advance. Who knew that this type of vacation activity would be that popular? Exactly. Um, and 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 most of the organizers, you know, claim it's just this sort of return to travel boom that they've experienced. Um, some of them said people really discovered the joys of swimming outside during the pandemic when the pools were closed, and so. That's one of the reasons they say is driving traffic. Um, one company I spoke to, Swim Vacation, are sold out till 2024. So, yeah. so make your plans soon. Yeah, absolutely. And when you go with one of these companies, how do they know that you have the ability to swim for several kilometers? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, I know that they break the groups up into different subsets um, based on how fast you swim. Um, so they, you know, probably, you know, they assess your swimming and then, you know, assign you with like a slower or faster group. And then they try to have safety boats shadow each group so that presumably no swimmer is left behind. Um, right. And of course, you can opt out if you don't want to do every swim. Uh, you know, many of these swim vacations, they they'll swim a couple times a day. And they, as you said before, they might go for kilometers. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, it, it kind of boggles my mind because, I, well, I guess it's a very Zen experience. But is this sightseeing? I mean, uh, I, I could see if you're scuba diving and you, you can see the beautiful underwater vistas in front of you. But beyond the physical activity of swimming, I don't get the appeal. Maybe because <laughs> I'm a slug. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, that, that's fair. I'm, I'm a swimmer, so I, I can see it. You know, and I think there's a lot of joy in doing something with other people who also love doing what you do. But there's another sort of subset of these swimming tours that are not about, you know, long distance swims. Um, they're just really in it for the joy of um, really splashing around. There's this, huh. this group in Britain called uh, the Blue Tits uh, Chill Swimmers. And <laughs> yeah, I love the name. And yeah. uh, they are really just about, you know, uh, getting together and enjoying, enjoying the water. And in their case, they're launching their first trip abroad in Iceland. Um, so Iceland, of course, has, you know, famous hot springs and, sure. you know, places to, to dip in that are very unusual and in, indeed are sightseeing. And some of these groups do combine what's called wild swimming, which means swimming out in the ocean or in a river or in a, a place that isn't just a place for swimming. They do that and they also set you up with long bike rides, with hikes, with other adventure style activities, correct? That's right. So uh, swimming in that sense becomes sort of a another component or aspect to a multi-sport vacation. So you might, you know, go hiking and then maybe you've hiked to a really pristine Canadian lake and then, you know, you swim there and, and maybe you don't right. even do a kilometer, you know. Um, so what, what are the major companies that are doing this. How long have they been in business? Because I'd never heard about this before I read your article. And what are the costs like? I know three, three questions yeah. at once. Yeah, well, um, there's the uh, there's one in based in Maine called Swim Vacations and they swim vacation, sorry, they um, operate off yachts. So you'll stay on a yacht, you know, for the week that you might swim. With nice. Them. And they've got a, yeah, they've got a yacht trip in, in Turkey and that's about $7,000 for a week. And again, they aren't available until 2024. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a group in England called Swim Trek um, and they have a very robust slate of offerings and they've been around since 2003 and they claim to have been the first to do this. So, so that's, so they have a lot of experience, 20 years doing it. And they say it's really growing in the U.S. and and that many of their clients are coming from the states uh, and they're adding more trips here um, in you know places like Hawaii and Oregon and then also nearby in places like the Caribbean with this idea that you know you can explore your own backyard and and you know save some travel emissions by staying closer to home and their trips. I'm sorry, I you you asked about price. Uh, they, yeah. they have a five-day trip in Oregon in the Cascade Lakes for $2,600. Huh. So slightly, well, I guess around the same price, actually, mm-hmm. not not too much less. Well, it, it, it's an absolutely fascinating article. Thank you so much, Elaine, for appearing on the Farmer Travel Show. Oh, it's always great to be here. Thank you, Pauline. On last weekend's show, we talked about camping and the weather a little bit. Our last guest uh, from thedirt.com made the point that it's really important in this climate crisis to make sure that when you're going out into the wilderness, you're doing so at a time when the weather will be okay. Uh, And this isn't just a matter of inconvenience. We've been seeing reports recently of hikers who have died because they've tried to hike in conditions that are simply too hot. So our next guest has some intel, hopefully, that will keep you safe when you go into the outdoors. He is Nick Cavanaugh. He is the CEO and founder of Sensible Weather. Hey, Nick, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I know that you guys have partnered with Camping Spot, and you're going to be giving their users a guarantee. If they are supposed to be camping out and the weather really isn't right for that, they can get all their money back. We're going to talk about that in a second, but I I want to talk to you first about how you can project what the weather will be nowadays. I think everybody was really surprised at what happened a couple of weeks back in Vermont when parts of the state were flooded and it wasn't even a hurricane. Nobody knew that those storms were going to be as intense as they were. So how do you uh, make sure that your forecasts are correct nowadays uh, with the weather being so damn weird? Sure. So we use a variety of technologies that fit under the bucket of what's called probabilistic forecasting. What that means is instead of just forecasting the most likely outcome for a particular weekend or camping trip, we are essentially forecasting the probability of every outcome. So we could say, for example, the rainstorms in Vermont and the Northeast generally, while those are unlikely events, we can say, hey, there's a 2% chance that this happens. Um, Moreover, we calculate the percent chance of things happening across the entire spectrum, you know, with with respect to rain, that could be from no rain at all to torrential downpours and everything in between. 
So you forecast this, and and then how do you get the word out to to the campers? So we build a, a bunch of technology on the back end that allows us both to produce these forecasts, allow consumers to to plan around likely weather for their trips, as well as ultimately guarantee it through a product that we call the weather guarantee. The way the weather guarantee works, let's say you've purchased a you know a weekend trip on on Campspot. And you're, you know, you're going to upstate New York, it's a campground in upstate New York. Each, sure. each day of that trip, we're essentially staying on top of the weather for you. And we send you a text message that notifies you of what's going to happen that day. Um, so it's, a, you know, again, a seamless blend of technologies that both allows us to understand odds that are perhaps far before the trip, you know, when you're booking that trip, as well as when you're in the trip to give you warning or potentially reimbursement for, for what's going to happen or what's happened. Oh, that's really interesting. So say somebody is planning a camping trip for three weeks from the day that they try and make a reservation at a campground. If you guys, you guys can alert them at that point that there could be terrible weather coming or would that still be too far out in advance? So essentially the idea is three weeks in advance, we can give you the probability of terrible weather. And maybe that's not even you know, terrible weather. That's just not, you know, not great weather. Um, right. So we understand sort of the spectrum of, of these probabilities, the uncertainty around, around weather events. And what we do, say three weeks before your trip, is we allow you the option to lock that in. If there's something that you know you really don't want to happen, say it's a torrential downpour, or maybe it's just raining for you know three hours on a particular day, we know the probability of that happening, and we can say, hey, you know, for a certain amount of money, we can guarantee that if that happens, we'll reimburse you. That's not what you wrote, not what you wanted. We forecasted that there's a sufficiently small chance of it happening, but there's still a chance we can give you a refund if it does. Huh. Okay. Well, we've been talking a lot about rain, but I would think, I mean, certain parts of the country are expected to have or have had 110, 115 degrees in heat. Is that also covered in terms of inclement weather? And can you foresee that several weeks in advance? Or is that something that really you only know about, say, the week of travel? Yes, we can. Uh, one, and and Two, actually, temperature is easier to forecast. It's easier to understand than rain. Rain's actually particularly challenging. The reason that we started with rain, however, as a so-called covered peril, um, is because most trips, the thing that you know most likely is going to ruin a trip is rain. Most of the time, that's the thing people are concerned about. Of course, in certain areas of the country, there is you know, probably Palm Springs, for example. It's very, very hot. Uh, you, know, yeah. you can't go golf on your golf, golf trip because it's 110 degrees. Our platform is built to offer that coverage as well. And we're rolling that out as we develop the product. Moreover, we can also do coverages for other things like air quality or wind or snow. Our platform is built to be sort of use case agnostic. And ultimately, with our weather guarantee products, as well as our forecasts that allow you to plan around trips, we want to be producing the product and the coverage that is bespoke and contextual to that experience. We want to be looking at you know the weather that is most likely to ruin a certain experience and both forecast that as well as cover for it on the back end. It's interesting. You know, you're talking about guarantees, which is insurance, and we have been seeing some insurance companies abandon certain areas of the country. I, I can't remember which one, but it was announced last week that one major insurance company will no longer be insuring Florida uh, because they feel that the conditions there, weather-wise, uh, are, are just unsustainable in, in terms of building housing there. 
you talked about Palm Springs. Would you give that gar- the guarantee that you give to Camp Spot for a place where you'd be insane to go camping in August? Just because we know even before climate change that it's just going to be too damn hot in, say, August. So hypothetically, yes, um, we could do it. That said, what we found is that most consumers, you know, when people travel, there's obviously seasonality of travel destinations. Generally, in August in Palm Springs, that's not going to be a very popular place to go to go camping. Um, <laughs> I hope not. So, however, so like we generally find that demand, just because nobody is booking camping in August, um, you know, demand for a weather guarantee for Palm Springs in August is going to be lower, just because nobody's going there. That said, if hypothetically somebody was going there um, and they wanted to have a, a weather guarantee product that, that covered if it was too hot, that product would simply be more expensive. Um, it's, it's just you know, because the odds of that happening are, are higher, therefore, you know, our cost of reimbursement effectively is going to be higher as well. And we adjust the price accordingly. Interesting. Um, if people want to find out more about this guarantee and about your services, where do they go? Sensibleweather.com. You can find all find out all about the company as well as our partners um, and see you know, what verticals and, and use cases might be of interest to them. Well, very good. Thank you so much for appearing on the Farmer Travel Show. Yes, thanks for having me. And we've reached the end of another show. But before I say goodbye for this week, I want to make an announcement. We have some really, really great new guidebooks out. We just came out with a London guide written by the brilliant Jason Cochran. Uh, So that's a must buy if you're going to London. And it was fully transformed after the pandemic. Uh, So a lot of changes to London. And we have a very interesting one that I actually edited uh, to Israel. This is a book that we had started working on pre-pandemic and then had to stop everything. Made a lot of changes to that one too, but we're very proud of the resulting book. And we have an excellent one coming out, I believe it's next week, for New Zealand. That was another one that I edited. And the difficulty in editing that book was it is such a beautiful country that I had trouble choosing the photographs because there were just too darn many that I wanted to put into the book. I mean, every photo I looked at was simply spectacular. I think it's impossible to go to New Zealand and not take spectacular photos. And just the variety of landscapes and activities, I mean, all of the crazy adventure activities you can do there, all of the glaciers and geysers and fjords and uh, just so much to see and do in New Zealand. And we had a wonderful new young author who literally spent about a year and a half researching that book. She did an excellent job. So if you're thinking of going to New Zealand, if you're thinking of going to London, if you're thinking of going to Israel, if you're thinking of going to the Virgin Islands, we have an excellent new book written by a long-time Fromer's author. Her name is Alexis Lipsitz Flippin. She also edits some guides for us. She spent a lot of time in the Virgin Islands, poor thing, (laughs) researching that book. And of course, we have Italy. We have my book on New York. We have Paris. 
We have Ireland rewritten by a wonderful Irish author named Yvonne Gordon. So if you are traveling and you're feeling like the type of travel information you're getting may not be as complete or as impartial as you'd like, because the the thing with the Farmer's Guides is we hire journalists and no, no item listed in any guide, whether it be a hotel, a restaurant, an attraction, what have you, not one item has ever paid to be in our guidebooks. Those items are in those guidebooks because we think those are the best. And that's the only reason they're in those guidebooks. So I thank you as always for listening to the Fromer Travel Show. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty Bon voyage. I'll see you next week. No